Hey science fans, I have another fantastic podcast to recommend to you guys. The Waterline Podcast. Everything you need to know about the science of water. Have we managed to develop the most sustainable irrigation techniques? Can water be the bringer of peace? Can flushing your toilet light up your house? The answer to all of these questions and many more in the Waterline Podcast which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech as part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. It's a new podcast that, uh, is, that is created to communicate the many facets of water. So please, check out an episode. I've, uh, I've checked out several. I actually went back and listened to the very first episode, which gives you a nice overview of uh, sources of fresh water all around the world, rivers, lakes, underground sources, and to see how, how delicate they are, how prone they are to contamination. This is exceptionally important stuff for our world and our future, and I highly recommend this podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Hey everybody, a couple quick things. First of all, this is part two of this interview, so if you have not heard part one, please go back and listen to part one first, and uh, this one will make quite a bit more sense. Um, and if, if you're new to this podcast, by the way, and just starting to listen, or, or just picking a couple episodes um, to listen to, um, awesome. Thanks for listening and downloading. Um, I would like to say that it is, in my opinion, a little uh, slightly better to start from the beginning and work your way up if if this is a podcast that you think you're going to be a regular listener to because there's a lot of stuff that we set up along the way and then um, kind of call back to um, as it goes on and on so we don't have to keep on setting up the same ideas. So if you're starting at the end, you may be missing a few things, but um, no big deal. Just wanted to mention that. Uh, but again, this is part two, so if you didn't listen to part one, why don't you at least listen to part one first? And then the second thing is is that I uh, we didn't talk about the charity of the week this week because it's the same because this is part two it's the same as last week um so i'd encourage you to donate to orange county animal care group um on behalf of gad um that's gad sad by the way not god but uh <laughs> how uh, however uh, whatever motivates you uh to be charitable the a big part of the reason why i decided to start plugging charity was a lot a lot um it had a lot to do with this very kind of stuff that we're talking about, kind of me learning about the uh, evolutionary underpinnings of of why we spend money the way we do and consume the way we do and um, conspicuous consumption and all the various ways in which we uh, blow money on ridiculous things in, in kind of a often misguided attempt of, at showing things off to others a lot of times we don't even realize we're doing it i spend money um like an idiot all the time i am the worst uh least fiscally responsible person and uh it's something i beat myself up for all the time and you know what anytime i do give 
a little bit of money to charity, which isn't all that often, if I'm being honest. I'm not the most charitable person in the world. I wish I was. But every time that I do, I end up feeling good about myself, uh, you know, even, even if that's selfish, even if that's just me being able to pat myself on the back. It's still a whole lot better reason to uh, do it than a lot of the other reasons in which we spend money. And I don't regret it. I don't ever regret it. That's the big thing. I never know. Um, you, you know, you learn about all this stuff, and uh, sometimes I don't know. It, I get confused and don't understand why I'm behaving the way that I am and why I do the things that I do. And and there's certain things like um, giving to charity or like quitting smoking or something like that 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 I've used as as um, kind of like a a talisman, if you will, from from um, inception, where uh, everyone has like uh, like a top to spin to to um, a, as a symbol to know if they're still uh, in a dream state or or in reality. <laughs> does, does that make sense? Um, that probably sounds kind of crazy. The point is, is that you don't. I don't ever regret having given 10 or $20 to charity. I don't think anyone does. Uh, all the dumb crap that you spend money on that you regret and all the crap that, that you were excited about and bought and then are no longer excited about and realize is a big waste of money, that never happens with charity. You'll never see like an e-true Hollywood story where it's like, this guy had it all. He had the money and the ladies and the private jet and blah, blah, blah. And then he blew it all on sick puppies and fighting animal cruelty. You never hear that e-true Hollywood story. It doesn't happen. So give to charity. You won't regret it. That's my little spiel. Um, I, I try not to... Uh, do guilt trips on this show by any means that's not at all what i'm after however if i can inspire you to do some good um then it makes me feel as if i've done some good so that's that and thank you guys for listening and enjoy part two are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear Misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Here We Are podcast. This is part two with God Sod, everybody. Thanks for uh, coming back. Oh, uh, thank you so I'm, much for I'm, inviting me back. Very on exciting. the program, we talked last week, um, uh, or last time, rather. Uh, about um, uh, about a lot of uh, how evolution drives a, uh, our uh, consumer behavior and how we uh, advertise ourselves and and um, you informed me that I need to buy a new car <laughs> <laughs> if I want to impress the ladies right. and 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 why that's the case and everything. So I have a question that's Shoot. been you may not be able to answer this. I don't know. Okay. We'll see. I but it, it's been uh, it's been weighing on my mind a bit um, because my ex girlfriend was a bit of a or my last ex girlfriend anyway was a bit of a. Uh, compulsive decorator, mm. I would say. I, I would say compulsion is about the only way to describe it. 
And so what is it with females in decorating? I, I, I get, uh, you know, we talked a lot about last week about, um, you know, guys in various cultures uh, doing this crazy, like, bungee jumping stuff right. and, and all that. And you're kind of advertising your courage and your status and all that. What, uh, why would women uh, be into this decorating stuff and, and watch? <laughs> why was my ex watching home and garden television tw uh, just 24 7? Uh, I don't think that one can offer an evolutionary explanation for every possible phenomenon. So, for right, example, right. Uh, you may like bowling and I may like fishing. Oh. And they need not be in evolution. And actually, that's one of the, the mistakes that people make when they criticize evolutionary theory. They think that every possible phenomenon has an evolutionary root. So I don't know why the ex-girlfriend wasn't <laughs> decorating, but you use the word that does have an evolutionary root. You used compulsion. Yeah. So maybe I could kind of jump off that. Sure. Uh, so compulsive buying, which is a actual psychiatric disorder. So we're not talking about somebody who purchases three pairs of shoes. We're talking about somebody who, you know, compulsively purchases to the point that it becomes a dysfunction. It ruins their marriage. It, it causes financial ruin, a psychiatric disorder. Well, it turns out that most sufferers of compulsive buying are women. Mm. And so one of the things that I did in my first book is to try to understand what explains some of these dark side consumption, uh, pathological gambling, pornographic addictions, eating disorders, compulsive buying. And it turns out, as I noticed in looking at the literature, is that each of these disorders assort themselves in very strong sex-specific ways. So, for example, pathological gambling and pornographic addictions, there is no place on Earth where it's not men who are the predominant sufferers. Hey, <laughs> what? <laughs> no. Sexist, sexist. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, when it comes to eating disorders and compulsive buying, it's predominantly women who suffer from these afflictions. So when it comes to compulsive buying, women don't hoard uh, lawnmowers and uh, widgets and hammers, right? If it were a domain general affliction, then you might argue that, hey, it's, it's all about just purchasing things, purchasing items. Rather, what they compulsively hoard are beautification products. So when a woman usually suffers from compulsive buying, she purchases tons of high heel shoes, tons of sexy clothes. So I argue that what's happening here is you're taking an adaptive mechanism, beautification, and it's simply, that mechanism goes haywire. It becomes hyperactive. Uh, so the original, if you like, root of the mechanism is adaptive. But then when it misfires, or rather hyperfires, then you run into these types of dark side consumption. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, uh, that's, uh, that kind of reminds me of... Um, it, I mean, OCD is, is very, uh, you know, like that, uh, where it's, you know, it helps to be clean and organized, especially in our ancestral past where there was, n there was an infinite amount of clean. You couldn't ever clean too much. There, there wasn't these staph infections or, or whatever. You, you were never getting rid of all the germs in your environment. So your, uh, your intuition is exactly right. As a matter of fact, while, while studying the literature, to write that section in my first book, I then became interested in OCD mm. and in the evolutionary roots of OCD. And I ended up then publishing a paper in a medical journal on the evolutionary roots of OCD. And so let me tell you very briefly about yeah, that. Yeah. So it turns out, so OCD, the, the O is for obsessions and C is for compulsive behaviors. Mm. It turns out that there are some obsessions and compulsions that 
happen equally across the two sexes, but then others where it is predominantly women that suffer from them or predominantly men that suffer from them. So for example, when it comes to ruminative thinking, there's, there's constantly an intrusive thought that comes in my head and I have to constantly address it. Well, let's suppose, here, here's an example of a ruminative thought that it'll be predominantly men that suffer from it. Did I say something at yesterday's party that now everybody thinks I'm a total idiot, right? So this is a status reduction concern. Well, this exact form of ruminative thinking, it is much more likely to be men that suffer from it. Yeah, I often like, I, I often can't <laughs> stop thinking about how cool I am. That's, a, that's my major right. thing, and it's just, it gets a little compulsive. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually have, because I, I, I joke about this in my act and stuff, but I have things from high school that come back all the time of just like... That you ruminate over? Yeah, like a, a story I tell specifically is, is about how I, I, when I was like 14, I thought that all, all girls, you know, I didn't know anything about how to get girls. I thought all they cared about was like penises or right. whatever, penis size. And I tried to one day in an effort to make myself up here larger i was wearing like uh just gym shorts with no underwear <laughs> underneath <laughs> and i gave myself an erection you were arrested <laughs> i was i should have been arrested but i was 14 right. so i was still a juvenile right. and and that memory still comes back in my mind i'm like no why did you do that why in the world did you do that and so uh, and, and I remember, like, I still remember, like, getting picked last for a sports day or so, right. some stupid thing when I was, like, 11 years old. So these are the things that men ruminate over. Right. What about females? So women will ruminate about things like when, when, a, when a woman has a child, she'll often start thinking, what if I just do something to harm it? I throw it off the balcony. Mm. I stick this knife in it. So because we know that from parental investment theory, women are much more vested in their children than men are. Now, in the context of Homo sapiens, men are great parents, but less so, less vested than women. So the ruminative thinking of, what if I harm my child, is much more likely to, to assort with women. Right. Uh, but what you said earlier is exactly right about OCD. The, the mechanisms of checking for environmental and security threats is adaptive. The, right? Uh, right, right. Am I contaminated with germs is adaptive. Spending eight hours cleaning yourself with scalding hot water is not. So right. it's exactly the same mechanism. The original adaptive m mechanism is, 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 is good, but then when it becomes hyperactive, it's bad. So it's the exact same mechanism. Right. And, I mean, I think a lot of this stuff is that it's also um, – it, it's good to get this research out there because I think a lot of people aren't comfortable talking about – Females definitely aren't comfortable talking about like, oh, the other day I thought about throwing my baby <laughs> off of a bridge right. or, or whatever. Right. And this is all stuff like when it comes to suicidal thoughts or murderous thoughts or whatever. I, I mean, your brain your, it just thinks of every possible scenario and every single choice. <laughs> It doesn't necessarily mean it's a choice that you want to make exactly. or you're going to make by any means, right. but, but you have thoughts that pop into your head from I, time I, to are time. Are you familiar with the, the work of David Buss where he looks at homicidal fantasies? Yeah, right. yeah, and yeah. That's exactly what you're saying, uh, right? I mean, uh, what is it, The Murderer Next Door right, or whatever is one right. of his books? Yeah. The fact that most of us at some point or other will have you know, very elaborate, uh, sure. you know, 
where you hire a hitman. Uh, sure, I might five times more a day than most people. Sure. <laughs> in your case, it's the hecklers in the, in the comedy show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I wish I could kill that guy. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, it, yeah, that, and, and, then, and then going back to, um, and not to bounce around too much, but going, going back to um, women obsessing over shopping or whatever, and then men tend to, I, I mean, I guess we don't need to cover this too much because it's probably covered quite a bit already, but, but it is interesting why... Uh, you, you know, thinking about our brains in this in this rational way, like right. uh, like uh, the uh, uh, you know, we should be these good economists and everything. Why are men out like when when I go to Vegas or whatever? Like I have a system and it works and everything. But why does everyone else gamble? You know, <laughs> why does why is everyone else such <laughs> right. fools? Right. Um, and, and this is predominantly men. Uh, right? Yeah, pathological gambling is almost uh, predominantly a male affliction. Uh, not only that, the specific demographics uh, can be sort of drilled down even further. It's oftentimes single, low-status males. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that high-status older males don't oftentimes gamble, but the sort of the pathological gambling affliction is really one that, if you like, is a strategy for getting resources, right? I mean, so for example, think of the, the bank robber, right? The bank, bank robbery is just another way uh, one of many strategies to get resources. Right. Now, why am I getting those resources? Because ultimately, I have to impress the ladies. And again, right. this doesn't have to be conscious, right? But when a young, single, low-status male has no other alternative but the strategy of pathologically gambling, well, then this becomes a, a viable strategy to garner resources. You know, it's interesting because I, I find myself... Um, oh, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but I, from time to time, buy a lottery ticket. Mm. Uh, probably like once, twice a month, I buy a lottery ticket, and I feel like such a fool every single time. But I do find myself doing it more often when um, when I I'm feeling financially stressed, or or when I'm um, feeling more depressed or maybe, maybe a little lower on, on the totem pole or, or whatever. And, and this is, this is also like something people might look at. Um, it, you know, you, you see, uh, like ghetto life or whatever. And it's like, why are these young men, they, they don't have any money. And then they go and they spend a fortune on rims for their car. Right. Why are they, right. <laughs> why right. are they doing this? And, and but, um, but, you know, if you can, like we talked about last week, uh, you know, I can, I can go on the road. Um, you, you know that I have a crappy car and a crappy apartment here in L.A. <laughs> and everything. But I can go on the road and I can have a nice rental car sure. and I stay in a nice hotel and I'm on stage making a room of people Duplicity is and, an adaptive <laughs> strategy. Yeah. And I can kind of right. advertise myself right. in various ways. And so... Uh, so gambling's sort of along right. those sure. same great, lines. Great, very quick story about uh, lotteries. Uh, when I was a doctoral student, I had uh, I was fortunate to have uh, Dick Thaler as one of my professors, who's a one of the world's leading uh, behavioral economists. And I think it was him who had uh, shared the following study with me. So if you intercept uh, people, I don't think he, in this case I don't think they they analyzed whether it's men or women. But if you intercept people who are uh, showing a lot of effort in choosing their lottery numbers. You know, uh, let me multiply my dog's uh, uh, 
alphabets divided by modula two, right? You're putting a lot of thought into, you know, what's my wife's birthday, multiply it by three, divide by four. Uh, so you take people who are doing a lot of effort to pick the lottery numbers, you approach them and you say, how many tickets did you buy? Let's say it's four. You say, look, I'll give you eight, so double the number of lottery tickets, but I get to choose them. Many people will refuse that. Uh, <laughs> thing, right? Really? Right? So it shows you how the, the, the rational man, the homo economicus uh, view of decision making is faulty, as we now painfully know. You just uh, kind of convince yourself that like, well, I have a strategy. You know, here, I have a my strategy. My numbers haven't yet come up. It's, it's their time soon. This is precisely, by the way, why. I mean, uh, my system in Vegas is, is going to work down right. the road. You but, just haven't but like hit everyone the else is that's such right, an yes, idiot. Yes. Uh, uh, so casino, casino operators uh, play on this because what they'll often do, let's say, at the roulette table is they'll give people a, a sheet where the people can track how often the black has come or red has come or which number has come up. Because what they're basically doing is they're giving you, they're playing on your illusion of, you know, I can study the patterns and therefore, oh, look, seven blacks have come, red is due. Right. But of course, if, if that mechanism is truly random, then each of the rolls or, or spins is completely independent of another one. Right. But they're precisely playing on the illusion that you have some control. There's something to be learned from past events. They're smart bastards. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> you still haven't heard my system oh, okay, yet. Go, go. So what I do is I wait outside of the casino, and as people are going in, I go, hey, I bet you that you're going to lose money in there. <laughs> <laughs> so if you win money, I, I will owe, I you owe you more money. But if you lose money, you're That's going to That's a pretty good system. That's a pretty good system. system. Yeah. Uh, you're so close-minded, I felt like. Um, but uh, so... So what? So this is like happening in um, modern times now. But what? What were you know? You think a lot about um, how ancestors, our ancestors, were um, like gambling and taking chances right. of, of their own, whether it be hunting or whatever. And and uh, what kind of um, are there any good ideas about? how they were, I, I mean, makeup goes way back in history. Right. Um, and, and there are like hunter-gatherer tribes that were able to look at and study and see the various um, ways in which they might be, um, you know, advertising their looks or ability to hunt or resources or whatever. But how, so how do you go about um, like doing this? We can't travel back in time. Right. So how are you... Uh, how are evolutionary psychologists and biologists like coming up with these ideas about right, what question. our ancestors were doing? Uh, so, so maybe I'll, I'll expand the, the, uh, your question to how do evolutionary scientists do evolutionary work? Mm -hmm. uh, how do they build evidence for an adaptation? Uh, now, the reason why it's really important to answer this question is because one of the key criticisms of evolutionary theory, and a profoundly incorrect criticism, is that, you know, since we don't have a lens to the past, although we do, uh, hey, evolutionary theory just amounts to nothing more than fanciful storytelling. You mm -hmm. come up with some hand-waving, elegant ex post hoc explanation, and then you convince people that you're onto something. Nothing could be further from the truth. So let me give you two examples. They'll be a bit detailed, so if you bear with me. Mm -hmm. So let's take, for example, the idea that uh, are toy preferences learned or innate? 
Uh, I love to use this example because uh, social constructivists like to argue that uh, our gender social socialization happens, starts happening through uh, you paint the r baby room blue, blue and they, now a, they grow a pe so, penis. So, so, exactly. <laughs> so Johnny pl uh, is uh, encouraged to play uh, aggressively with the truck, and, and Linda is taught to play nurturing with the pink doll, and that starts the cascade of gender role socialization. And so how would, how would an evolutionist go about to counter this premise? And so this is exactly what I did in some of my writings. So let's see how one would go about doing it. So... If you take children, now watch how, here what I'm going to do is I'm going to demonstrate how evolutionists build what are called nomological networks of cumulative evidence. In other words, they build these different lines of evidence, none of which is definitive, but when put together, definitely supports your argument. So let's go with toy preferences. So if you take children who are in the pre-socialization stage, meaning that they are too young, to have the cognitive capacity to be socialized, and you give them a preferential task with toys, they will tend to gaze much longer at trucks or dolls as a function of their sex. So already that... And it, I think it's important to point out, this isn't... There are all sorts of individual differences of all, all over the place. These are averages. So, sometimes people forget this. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. These are absolute averages. Exactly, these, exactly. So. exactly right. It's, it's good to point that out. So number one, we know that from developmental psychology, that preference already exists. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's go on. Now, go ahead. Uh, well, uh, I was going to talk about, um, it, it, isn't there some sort of, didn't they do a study with juvenile monkeys? So I'm going to get oh, to it. Stop awesome. being so eager, all man. Right, all right. Let the godfather uh, speak. All right. All right. We should so, probably tell people that you go by the godfather. Yeah, so let me tell you how that, that, right. that came up, actually. So several years ago, uh, Baba Brinkman, who's a, evolutionary rapper. He's a guy who raps about evolutionary yeah. mechanisms. People might want to check him out. Yeah, very entertaining stuff. So he had asked me, hey, would you be in one of my videos? And I <laughs> said, oh, sure. I mean, but if I'm going to be a rap star, I need to go by some cool, you know, moniker. And so I put out a call on my social portals, uh, you know, platforms saying, hey, guys, come up with a, a cool name for my rapping career. And so people came up with all sorts of really fun names. And at one point I was telling uh, the owner of my, one of my local cafes where I hang out in, in Montreal, the story. And so he, he pauses and thinks, and he goes, oh, that's easy, man. You're the godfather. <laughs> I said, boom, that's it. So now, several years later, I get emails from colleagues, professional emails, where they just say, dear godfather. <laughs> First off, it's not fair that you, uh, I don't know how old you are. I just turned 50. A 50-year-old um, academic, uh, Canadian academic, <laughs> has a cool moniker, and I don't. That is, that is completely unfair. I told you, you have height, I don't, so it all evens out. But so, so back to the uh, juvenile monkeys. Yeah, so, uh, so the studies have been done with rhesus monkeys, vervet monkeys, and now there is some evidence also with chimps mm. that demonstrates that there is a sex specificity in toy preferences exactly akin to human infants. So, so far, so look at the evidence so far. Developmental psychology, check. Comparative psychology, meaning across species, check. Let's do a few more. You could, there's a study that was done where they tracked children's testosterone levels from age seven days to six months, uh, 
and then they looked at their toy preferences, and it turns out for boys and girls that testosterone is correlated to the sex specificity of their toy preferences. Again, demonstrating a hormonal link to toy preferences. Mm. Now let's look at a clinical population. There's a uh, disorder known as congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is a endocrinological disorder that masculinizes little girls. So a little girl that suffers from this disorder will have morphological features that are masculinized, will have behavioral patterns that are maxima, uh, uh, masculinized. So girls that suffer from this affliction will have toy preferences that are much more similar to boys. Now let's go on. Let me give you a few more. Yeah. Uh, if you go to Sweden, uh, now why Sweden? Be Sweden scores the highest on gender equality or gender neutrality. The Swedish government has gone out of its way to turn all the men of Sweden into eunuchs. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Basically, uh, they, they wish to remove uh, uh, pronoun markers, you know, he, she. Uh, there, there should be absolutely no way to distinguish between. It's a gender-neutral gender society. As a matter of fact, there is a, a score called the Hofstede score that, that, that establishes that Sweden is the most gender-neutral country in the world. So what a wonderful place to actually study after this social experiment has been done at the nation level, what the toy preferences of Swedish children are. And so this study has been done where they inventoried um, the uh, toys in Swedish boys' and girls' rooms, something like 40,000 toys. So this is not a small sample. And guess what? Little Swedish boys and little Swedish girls have the exact same preference as kids anywhere else. Mm. Let me give you two more pieces. An anthropologist went to uh, cultures in Africa that are very, very different from Western cultures and studied their toy preferences, again, replicating the exact same toy preferences. And then finally, if, that's, if all this evidence is not enough, this is the kicker. Uh, so if you look at funerary art, so this is uh, the, the art that is depicted on funeral monuments from ancient classics. So this is from several thousand years ago. I think it's from Greece or maybe Roman art. I can't remember. When children are depicted on funerary arts, they're depicted with sex-specific toys. Mm. So look how many different lines of evidence I just gave you to finally demonstrate that no, it is not true that toy preferences are just a random patriarchal uh, you know, socialization, but that there are some biological slash evolutionary mechanisms that are at play here. Mm. I didn't just hand, uh, hand uh, wave, uh, come up with hand-waving arguments. I didn't just come up with just so storytelling. I actually spent a lot of effort studying a million different literatures to arrive at the singular conclusion that there is a biological component to toy preferences. Hmm. Can I give you a second example? or is it? I would love okay. to. Yeah. So let's take uh, waist-to-hip ratio preference of 0.7. This is the old hourglass, right? right? So one of the classic findings, at least in the, the popular media, uh, and this was originally developed by Devendra Singh, an evolutionary psychologist at University of Texas, Austin. So the idea is that men have a certain preference of, of a body shape of a woman of around 0.7. And the reason why that preference exists is because uh, it, it is a marker of nobility and fertility. Okay. Now, if, if all we did w was to stop right there, then you might say, well, where's the evidence for that? That is a just-so story, right? So let's see if we can come up with the evidence. Well, if you go and do epidemiological studies in medicine to look at the health status of women as a function of their waist-to-hip ratio, if they're closer to 0.7, they're healthier. 
If they're closer to 0.7, they're younger. If they're closer to 0.7, they're more likely to bear children. Mm. So we already established the medical veracity of that link. Now, let's, let's take this preference. We don't just test it with undergrads at Ohio State University. You could go to a wide variety of cultures, right? You could go to an Amazonian tribe, show them different pictures, as has been done, mm-hmm. and then guess what? Their preferences are exactly aligned. So that's point number two, the cross-cultural uh, evidence for it. Go ahead. So me trying to pick up women at nursing homes, that's not, that's, that's not a good thing for my <laughs> That is genes. not an adaptive strategy. No, <laughs> no. no. Okay. Your, your preference for octogenarians will die with you. <laughs> so let's go on. Uh, so now if you look at art from you know, ancient Egypt, from India, from Greece, from Africa, and you look at s- statues and you do an analysis, a, an actual morphological analysis of the statues spanning several thousand years of art and across different cultures, well, guess what? The marker of beauty is roughly th- that hourglass. Let, mm. let me give you a f- one or two more. I did a study a few years ago uh, in 2008 where I, uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned this uh, during our last chat, uh, where I had an undergraduate student code the waist-to-hip ratio of uh, female escorts. So if you go, let's say, on, on online <laughs> sites, right? Yeah. You could, uh, my name is Linda. I'm 27. I'm five foot three. My uh, ha- my waist to hip is this and that, right? Well, you just to be absolutely sure that you know everything is correct. Do, wouldn't you actually have to hire a lot? <laughs> that's of right. That's right. That. So we, we had to hire all of them and, <laughs> right. and you know ha- have sex with them. That was just part of the reason. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm just kidding. Granting agency. Uh, so anyway, so so so. So from 48 different countries, uh, this very assiduous undergrad had uh, collected data. And guess what was the average for the advertised waist-to-hip ratio across an incredibly varied number of cultures? I think it was 0.72, very exactly within mm-hmm. that range. Now, here's the kicker. You could take congenitally blind men. I mean, this is just breathtaking, right? Now, so these are men that have never had the gift of sight. And, and this, this study has been done, not by, not by me, but, but some other colleagues. Uh, and then you have them uh, touch mannequins of different waist-to-hip ratio. Guess which one they prefer. So look how many different extraordinarily varied types of evidence I've provided you with to arrive at the 0.7. Now, this is infinitely more data than the typical data that the detractors of evolutionary psychologists will come up with, right? Yeah. They'll run a study with, uh, with 18 undergrads in their lab, and then they publish it in a top journal, yet they then wave accusations at you for coming up with just-so stories when the evidence that you've collected is literally thousands of times more co- complex and complete than anything that they could have ever hoped to come up with. So this idea that, now, that, that evolutionary psychology is all about hand-waving is tr- is extraordinary BS. Hmm. It really stems from people, ultimately, who either don't know what evolutionary theorizing is or are simply ideologically opposed to it. But certainly from a scientific perspective, few people are as careful in terms of their data collection as our evolutionary scientists. So take that, feminist bloggers. The <laughs> dad father has spoken. There you go. I, you know, I feel, I feel like just dropping the mic now and walking out of my condo. There's nothing more I could say. It's done. <laughs> 
So, I, I mean, I, I do think, though, that, um, you know, that there, there's always an extent to which I, I think it's uh, kind of important to point out that we also have been built to be certainly, uh, you know, a, a waist to hip ratio and, and, um, and, and preferences of, of uh, juvenile children. Yeah, that, you know, that, that's pretty hardwired, but we also are built to be pretty flexible. And I do think that ev even if, so so take take your common argument that that um, that there's uh, uh, that w women feel pressured to be skinny from some evil society idea or, uh, of oppressing women or whatever. So so you can look at that and and say so so like our, all our magazines or whatever yes. are are uh, are oppressive and this is you can't live up to this. And but but if you look at it, the the females and and the female models in female magazines, magazines for females, are actually much thinner than than are found in like Playboy right. or whatever. And then also, and, and men do the same thing where the, the male models in men's magazine or, uh, you know, whatever, fitness magazine or whatever, these guys are much bulkier and more ripped than females actually prefer. And so this is it, you know, kind of just... Um, like a super uh, stimuli. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, is that what it is? Or do you think it's just people kind of guessing at what the other... Like, we can't really get into the minds of the other gender you know and and do you think that women see that that waist to hip ratio and they just see the thin waist and think that's what we're after and think right but but anyway uh, so besides that so um what i'm trying to say is so rather than these magazines creating the problem uh you know i think we'd both agree that it's it was actually our instincts that created right. these magazines in the first place exactly. however don't you think there is still room for like a lot of feedback loops? Yes. Where where sometimes you know yeah we do have these natural inclinations and then and then society say you know football's the most popular thing in right. in Texas or whatever right. and, and now every boy grows up sure. having to play football. Right. So so let me mention a few things. So number one, you're absolutely right that we have built in as an adaptation the capacity to be adaptive, mm -hmm. basically behavioral plasticity or flexibility. So you're exactly right. So if we link that to the waist-to-hip ratio, uh, it does turn out that in some cultures, men will tune their waist-to-hip ratio preference as a function of how much famine there is in that culture. So in cultures where there is endemic famine, uh, men will typically prefer uh, somewhat higher uh, waist-to-hip ratio. That right. demonstrates, so when we say, that's why when you talk about waist-to-hip ratio, you don't Technically, you don't say it's a universal. You say it's a near universal, mm -hmm. meaning that it starts off. Imagine a radio setting. It starts off at 0.7, and then it could be adjusted as a function of environmental contingencies. And this, again, speaks to this idea of interaction. There's an interaction between built-in mechanisms and environmental stimuli. Mm -hmm. uh, now, regarding your point about, uh, you know, is our magazines a reflection of our human nature, or do they create human nature? I mean, that's really some of the key issues that I address in several of my books. So I have, uh, so I, I've, I have this term that I, uh, goes something like this. Uh, I argue that cultural products are fossils of the human mind. So contrary to the typical socialization argument, which basically says that we are born with empty minds, and then it's song lyrics and advertising and Hollywood images that fill these empty minds, 
I argue the, for the exact oppo opposite causal mechanism. I say that song lyrics and uh, mo magazines and movies are a reflection of our human nature. And so if you want to study human nature, study the content of these cultural fossils, right? Human brains don't fossilize, right? The paleontologists can go into the field and look at skeletal remains, look at fossils to study the evolutionary history of a species. Well, you can't do that with human brains, but what, what human brains do leave in terms of fossils are cultural products. So you could study the narrative of an ancient Greek poem that's from 3,000 years ago in a completely different culture and show that the exact same themes arise in that great poem as they do in a great gripping movie today. And it's mm. paternity uncertainty, it's sibling rivalry, it's status seeking. So there's basically five or six key universal narratives that drive literature, that drive movie, that drive art. And so what I do in, my, in some of my work is I do content analyses of these cultural products to, to demonstrate their universality. Let me give you one or two examples mm -hmm. uh, since you're obviously a comedian. So uh, and on Seinfeld, now for some of the listeners, maybe they're too young to remember Seinfeld. Uh, so there's a, there's a famous... Uh, too young to, to remember, remember Seinfeld. It's impossible. I hope that's not the case. <laughs> uh, so there's a show, on, there's one episode on Seinfeld, uh, Master of My Domain, right? Yeah. Which is the euphemism for, you know, uh, being able to uh, resist your masturbatory urges. Uh, and so the three male characters and the female character uh, put together a bet to see how long they can each go without masturbating, and then the one who lasts the longest will win the bet. Now, how can I study that from an evolutionary perspective? Well, it turns out, number one, that the three male characters ask the female character to put in a lot more money into the pot precisely because they recognize that there's a physiological difference uh, between men and women and their capacity to to actually do this thing, hmm. or not, or in this case, not do it, right? Right. Uh, so number one. Number two, as each of the characters succumbs to their masturbatory urges, it's worthwhile to analyze what was the trigger that led to, to them being aroused to the point that they needed to masturbate. So in the case, for example, of Kramer, one of the characters, it's because there is a woman across his building that is beautiful, that is young, that is exercising in all sorts of positions and it's scantily clad exercise clothes, right? So it's a visual stimuli, stimulus that led to him uh, not being able to resist his masturbatory urges. When it comes to the female character, Elaine, succumbing to her masturbatory urges, what did she do? Do you remember? Um, yeah, it was, uh, wasn't it Kennedy? Right, and what, what did she, she, she didn't fantasize about having hot sex with Kennedy, <sighs> right? What? It's been a while. That she fantasized about becoming the wife, long-term partner uh, of a very high-status yeah, male, yeah. right? So she didn't fantasize. She didn't look at the 18-year-old unemployed uh, uh, cabana boy with the pretty butt and said, oh, my God, I'm so aroused. I need to take a break and go masturbate, right? So, so these triggers exactly align with some of the sex preference, preferences and mating behavior. So screenwriters, while they may not be you know, versed in evolutionary theory, they're Darwinian beings. So they naturally know what are the narratives that work, that are consistent with human nature, and which ones are not. Hmm. So let me give you another example. Uh, romance novels are a wonderful venue from which to study the types of men that women 
find most attractive because romance novels around the world are predominantly read by women. And therefore, you could look at Romanian romance novels or Arabic romance novels or Harlequin romance novels in America, and what you'll find is that the archetype of the male protagonist is always the exact same guy. He's tall, he's a count, prince, he's also a neurosurgeon, he has a six-pack, he is reckless and risk-taker, he fights... You're basically describing me right now. Describing <laughs> That's exactly... They, 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 they watch your life and, they, and basically he wrestles alligators on his, uh, his uh, six-pack and the only way that he could be tamed is through the love of this one woman, right? I mean, I just told you every single romance that exists. Yeah, yeah. Now, a company a few years ago, and the name escapes me, I, don't, I never remember which company it is, but I heard this somewhere or maybe read it somewhere. A company decided that they wish to do away. So th th this, this feeds into how could marketers use this information, right? right? So a company said, we want to do away with these sexist archetypes. We wish to create a, a new model of masculinity, right? Not these antiquated views of what masculinity is. And so they came up with a line of romance novel precisely because they're thinking that human brains are empty vessels and you could teach um, human brains to be anything, right? Consumers can be taught to like anything. They don't have a innate human nature. And so they created, I'm, I'm being So they created like romance novels <laughs> where they're like, the, the female gets to live in a van with a... <laughs> Not quite. So they created, and I'm, here I'm using some right. uh, hyperbole for comedic value. So they created a new version of masculinity where the guy is pear-shaped where he's got a nasal voice, where he sucks his thumb, where he goes into a fetal position and listens to Taylor Swift music. Uh, and guess what? Women didn't buy those romance novels. That product failed. It failed because it offered something that is incongruent with human nature, or at least, in this case, incongruent with the human nature of women, who are the predominant consumers of that product. Right. So, so one of the things that one can take away from a practical perspective of my research is that to truly understand consumers, you ultimately have to understand human nature. Good marketers are those that understand human nature well. They may not have read my books, and they may not know evolutionary psychology, but they intuitively understand human nature. Hmm. And those who have an erroneous view of human nature will fail in the marketplace. Right. And so um, when, when I was a teenager watching um, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon with Wizard of Oz, is that because our ancestors <laughs> had been smoking way too much weed for, for uh, 100,000 years or so? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure that I'm willing to make an evolutionary <laughs> argument for your Pink Floyd uh, Fair enough. <laughs> so, uh, you know, here's something that I strug struggle with a lot is is this um you know kind of inherent um male female conflict of of men doing a bit more variety seeking and and uh females looking for commitment a little more and then jerry in the lane kind of you know couldn't couldn't make it work because right. Jerry needed a new girlfriend every episode and right. elaine <laughs> wanted to marry a kennedy right so uh i i mean <laughs> 
how do we you're a married man you yes. have you have kids so you you just lost or, or what you, you lost, you right, lost right, right. right well my my testosterone has taken a huge beating <laughs> post kids yeah uh, i i mean how do i i know it's not your job to prescribe solutions right. or anything like that but uh, it does help if we can at least inform ourselves right. to understand why we are feeling uh, th these certain ways or, or fantasizing in different ways. Right. And, and, um, and, you know, life is about compromises, it is. But, but it is just like, I, I think that stuff is so important because it, it's, I think it's just, I, I think it compounds it and makes it more frustrating for people when they, when they think, Oh, well, we're just on the same page. Right. Uh, females are, are like me, so they, they just want to have sex and, and, you know, and, and no strings attached right. and all that. And sure, there are, there's plenty of uh, females like that, and there's plenty of men that, uh, you know, uh, are very much into commitment and everything. But, uh, but that presumption of, of just kind of projecting your mind on the opposite sex, sex I think, just uh, gets makes people so frustrated so I'll, I'll i'll talk about a study that i did a few years ago on gift giving that speaks exactly to that issue but first let me address this tension between sort of our institutionalized monogamy and our desire to have extra pair copulations mm -hmm. uh well that's exactly what it is and so so humans because we are a biparental species we need to pair bond <coughs> excuse me we need to pair bond for a while and therefore, the whole idea of romantic love is a wonderful natural solution to the fact that we need to actually feel strong sentiments for one another, male, female, in, in order to be able to successfully rear a child to sexual maturity. And so because of this biparental issue, it makes perfect sense that we pair bond for a long time. But of course, there are very clear evolutionary reasons as to why both men and women, not to the same extent, but both men and women would also be desirous of going behind the bush with as many other partners as possible. And, mm. and certainly for men, women is a bit more strategic. And so that's, therein, therein lies the tension of monogamy, right? Uh, there are evolutionary reasons to explain why we would pair bond, but then there are also very clear tensions that are pulling us in, in to seek variety hmm. uh, so it's 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 a tough act to yeah and then and then sometimes i think people also uh take it kind of hard thinking about um love as this bonding mechanism too you know right. people people like to think of love as like this universal thing that's out in space right. that we're <laughs> tapping into you right. know with a, some love antenna that we have and and right. if we just dial in the right frequency <laughs> we we can receive more of it from the the universe right. uh, when that's when, i think the, the book the secret is all about that <laughs> <laughs> uh, i've been i've just been reading that book just, over and over just speak again. to the it cosmos right and send positive energy and the ferrari will be at your door in a few minutes yeah, yeah. i don't know what kind of energy i'm putting out there <laughs> to get the corolla right but let me tell you about the gift giving study okay. that speaks to this sort of miscalibration between men and women so in 2003, I published a paper with a former doctoral student where we looked at the reasons that men and women give gifts to one another. And so part one, uh, we found that men are much more likely to give gifts to women for tactical reasons rather mm -hmm. than si situational reasons would be it's his birthday. And so I give him a, a gift. That's a situational reason. Tactical reason would be to demonstrate that I'm generous, 
to seduce her, to get her to have sex with me. Well, not surprisingly, probably to anyone who's li- who's, who listened to the show, uh, men are much more tactical in their uh, romantic gift giving. Mm. Okay, fine. That I think we could have guessed this. Here's the second part that speaks to the miscalibration issue that you spoke of earlier. If you ask men and women, why do you think the opposite sex gives you gifts? So here's what happens. Watch, this is an incredible miscalibration. Men think that the reason why women give them gifts is exactly why they give gifts to women. So when a, when a woman gives me a gift, it's because, well, she wants to have sex with me because that's what I would give her a gift for. On the other hand, women are painfully clear that the reasons why men give them gifts are different from why they give gifts. So why is it that women are so well attuned to this gift-giving dance while men are so oblivious? And so I are Go ahead. They, they need to be able to be more selective exactly. and discerning. Perfect. Right? So, so it would make evolution. There is no cost to men misreading that signal, right? If a woman lies to me, if a beautiful woman... Oh, there's like a a teaspoon of semen, and then you got (laughs) to take a nap. That's a cost. It's true, true, (laughs) true. Uh, Yeah, you've got to get yourself up for... In your case... There's a whole refractory period there. That's a tremendous And by the way, that refractory period only gets worse (laughs) with age. very frustrating cost sometimes. (laughs) So, So men have zero cost. I mean, if a gorgeous woman comes to me and says, hey, here's a, here's a flower. I want to be yours forever. Now let's go behind the bushes and have sex. And I say, oh, really? Sure, let's do it. And then she lied to me. Oh, gee, too bad. I just had sex with a gorgeous woman. On the other hand, if women were as easily duped, that wouldn't advance their evolutionary interest, right? If every single guy could dupe them into having sex with them by offering them flowers, hmm. they'd be in trouble. So then it would make sense that they've evolved a better capacity to read gift-giving intent and and then it uh and then it goes around and around and and this arms race of of guys figuring out <laughs> better ways to, 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 to trick you yeah, and, and women figuring out more of the tricks and by the way just be, before you go on to the next question uh, uh since we're talking about generosity and gift-giving so uh, yeah. and since you wanted some prescriptions and i also wanted to ask you real quick um because i want to talk more about gift-giving yeah okay but what do you think it is? Uh, I have my own ideas about this, but what do you think it is about um, uh, about flowers that is so yeah. it seems very cross cultural yes actually so there is a study that came out a few years ago, I think maybe two thousand five or two thousand six I think it was published in evolutionary psychology the journal and it 's actually open access so you, so people can go check it out where they looked at the evolutionary roots of you know flower giving. You know, and here's one case where I might argue that there was a bit of hand-waving. Right, right. The, 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 I, th- I think if I remember correctly, the general argument is that it kind of taps into our biophilic instinct, right? The idea that we, that we have this innate love for communion with nature. And so what you're doing here is you're giving a gift. So the, the, the act of gift-giving is one that we understand, right? We, gift-giving occurs across many different species as, as a form of nuptial courtship. The fact that it's specifically flowers is that it is simply tapping into this biophilic instinct. 
I'm not sure I'm fully convinced. It's a bit of kind of just-so storytelling, but that's, I think, the best argument that's been proposed that I'm aware of. I have a just-so story for you. Okay, that's, go. that's my own. Okay. Um, and, and so you can criticize it as much <laughs> as you'd like. Uh, I, I think that, um, first off, flowers are a pretty dependable um, sign of future life, and, and they uh, uh, plant flowers before there's berries and everything. Okay. And, and, uh, and, and often um, animals and everything will will be coming out around that time and like in the spring and everything. And I, and so I think this is a pretty dependable, um, sign of, of future life. And if, and if you're out there and, and you're, uh, and you're gathering or whatever, you're, you're pretty in tune with this probably. I see. A and, and you're probably picking up on this is I mean, it's kind of lost on us now, but I'm sure our right. hunter gatherer ancestors were right. quite familiar with these patterns. And if you're a guy and you're out there hunting or whatever, and it, maybe this is even before communication, and you can bring back <laughs> one of these honest signals of future growth and be like, hey, look what I found. Right. I know where to find the resources. I think right. there could have been somewhat. And, and the idea that you can, you can bring it back without telling the lady where you got it from is also some sort of leverage right. that you would maybe be able to right. use. So there's a just so uh, story for right. you. Right. Uh, so what you just did is exactly that, just so storytelling. If, if the explanation ended there, the, and if that's what all evolutionary psychology were, then the detractors that levy these accusations would be perfectly right. But right. on the other hand, if we take your explanation and then say, well, now, can we come up with a wide range of disparate data that could test Shane's hypothesis? Uh, well, then it no longer is a just-so story, right? right? I mean, just-so story, I think Michael Mills, the evolution psychologist here in Southern California, says that just-so stories are basically called hypotheses, right? I mean, you come up with a story, and then you test it. So, so the fact that you now engage in just-so storytelling is not itself sinister, if, if that becomes your sole explanation and you don't go out and collect the data to test that story, then, of course, you're a bad scientist. Right. Uh, but evolutionists don't do that, right? I mean, they, they, they do. Comedians get to speculate they, as they, much exactly. as they exactly. want to. You, you get paid to be funny. I get <laughs> yeah, paid yeah. to be judicious. Yes. Right, right. Um, so, so this gift-giving stuff, I'm not always giving gifts to ladies, although I, I am quite generous, <laughs> ladies. Uh, but, but I also, you know, I... I, I get gifts for the family and uh for the holidays yes. and birthdays i i buy shots for friends at the bar or whatever so Beautiful. so what's what's that about I'm yeah not, that's i'm not trying to procreate with my family or my <laughs> my male friends you know well i don't know <laughs> uh so in the in the subtitle of one of my books i have gift giving and that right so the consuming instinct what juicy burgers ferraris pornography and gift giving reveal about human nature the reason why i put gift giving very much speaks to your question. Gift giving is a wonderful uh, ritual from which to study some of these evolutionary imperatives because it taps into several distinct Darwinian modules. So we already spoke about gift giving in the courtship context, but why would I give gifts to kin or why would I give gifts to friends, as you said? Well, that's because uh, it, it links up to something called kin selection and to reciprocal altruism. Right. So th the, the manner in which you oil bonds, whether it be through kin or through non-kin, is through, in the context of humans, through these uh, courtships of reciprocal gift-giving, right? So you and I, uh, if we're friends, we may decide to remember one another's birthdays, 
and then we invite one another for dinner. Now, from a strict economic perspective, you say, well, we're going to end up at the same final income point, so why don't we just do away with this ritual since I'm going to spend about $50 on you for dinner and you're going to spend $50 on me. No, but the point of it is that by remembering each other's birthdays, that is solidifying our bonds of reciprocity. Mm. And so what I, I've done several studies on gift giving. Uh, let me mention actually my most recent one, uh, which is not yet published. So we looked at gift giving at Israeli weddings. Uh, specifically, we looked at uh, the size of the monetary gift. So in Israeli weddings, uh, typically you just give money, right? So it's not I give a toaster or, or a crystal vase. You give $150 or, sh- or shekels, whatever it is in the Israeli currency. And so uh, an Israeli colleague of mine uh, who collected the data with some of her uh, students uh, had a list of 30 weddings and the, the size of the monetary gifts at the wedding. So Uncle Mordechai gave $200. Uh, Aunt Hannah gave two, $150. And so we did two things. We tested two hypotheses. Number one, we looked at the size of the monetary gift as a function of genetic relatedness. So the idea being as you might expect, the greater the genetic relatedness between the giver and the bride and groom, the larger the gift, Mm -hmm. right? So people modulate their investment as a function of genetic relatedness. Brothers will give gifts that are larger to one another than second cousins. Now that you could have maybe intuitively guessed even if you weren't evolutionarily informed. The second hypothesis is much more subtle. This is the one uh, that demonstrates the power of evolutionary theorizing. So we took a principle. So if, if you only look at genetic relatedness as the sort of the, the, the means by which people modulate their investments, that's an incomplete story. And let me tell you why. So if you look at, for example, your four grandparents, they are all, on average, they share one-fourth of their genes with you, 25% of their genes with you. But if you now add an extra component known as genetic assuredness, how assured are you of the genetic link? Well, the maternal grandmother is fully assured of her link through two generations of maternal line. Mm -hmm. The paternal grandfather has two generations of paternal uncertainty. Therefore, there is a mechanism known as differential grandparental solicitude, which basically argues that maternal grandmothers should invest the most, paternal grandfathers should invest the least, and the two other grandparents somewhere in the middle, which has been shown in many different cultures. So again, that's amazing. And, and I was uh, I was closest to uh, my maternal grandmother. And, Evolution uh, explains everything. David. <laughs> so we took this principle and said, well. We predict that the maternal side of the bride and groom would give larger gifts than the paternal side, and that's exactly what we found. There is no way that you could have come up with this hypothesis where you're not informed via an evolutionary lens. By the way, this this particular study has now gone through many rounds of reviews in in a journal. Uh, It's been just dreadful. One of the reasons being that I think that some of the reviewers or maybe some of the people who are looking at the paper, maybe the associate editor, uh, had a particular disdain for evolutionary theorizing. Mm -hmm. And so now it looks like we might have to send it to, we're sending it to, we we have actually sent it to another journal, despite the fact that it went through a very, very long review process. That's a fascinating idea, though. Uh, Thank you. uh, If the editors are listening... (laughs) Right, right. You made a big mistake in not accepting this paper. Yeah, I agree. But uh, of course, I have wild ideas about flowers. And, uh, <laughs> That's right. But, but um, so th- this is a little bit of a tangent, but yeah. but it's all along the same lines. Sure. I, I liked. I, I was watching. 
Um, by the way, your, your YouTube channel, how yes. can people find it? Oh, yes, great. So it's basically uh, youtube.com slash C for channel slash Gatsad. I basically have short clips typically, a few times it's a bit longer, uh, where I just talk about anything. It could be about evolutionary theory, consumer behavior, religion, politics. So please join and subscribe. And you can, well, if you can't remember that, you can, well, just rewind. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but also, I think you can just Google uh, the sad truth. Exactly. Um, uh, S-A-A-D. Th thank you. And, exactly. And so anyway, I was watching a few of your videos, and they're great. Um, but uh, one, that, um, one that struck me as, as interesting and, and uh, poignant uh, and brilliant. Uh, all of those wonderful things. Charismatic, and you intelligent. dashing in it and everything. <laughs> Um, but one that I, I think kind of applies, uh, th there's like a through line through all of these theories is this idea of how the brain uses relativity, um, to kind of measure how well you're doing. And, and I think the video, what you touched on in particular in the video was how much sex does it take ah, yes. to, I knew you were going uh, for that one. <laughs> to, to be happy. And so could you talk a little sure, bit sure. about so this was a study. This wasn't my study. I was just re recounting someone else's study where they looked at uh, people's happiness as a function of, if you like, two variables. One, how much sex they have. And, of course, as you might expect, all other things equal, ceteris paribus, uh, the more sex, the happier I am. Now, that, that link has already been found. The second part, which is what you're referring to in terms of relative uh, standing is it's not enough for me to be happy by having a lot of sex. It's really important that I have more sex than shame. Mm. Uh, in other words, what really makes me happy is that I get a lot of sex and that those around me get less sex than me. And so here what I was arguing is that there's this, uh, we have this inbuilt calculus to constantly measure ourselves on, on many different metrics against others against relevant others, right? And that's a really important point. There's something uh, in psychology known as social comparison theory, which speaks exactly to this issue. But what people oftentimes fail to remember about social comparison theory is that you need to compare yourself to relevant others. In other words, I don't necessarily feel insecure if I'm being compared to Donald Trump because Donald Trump is somebody that's out of my social network. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if there is a guy that is consistently in my social network that is challenging my status, that's the guy that makes me feel threatened. So if you look, let's look at it from the f female perspective. Uh, surprisingly, women, when they view images of beautiful models, don't feel bad about themselves, contrary to the sort of typical premise that you hear, the narrative that you hear. They oh, don't feel bad about themselves because they could discount those supermodels as genetic mutants, right? I mean, I mean they literally are genetic mutants, right? Mm -hmm. on, the, on, the, on the bell curve, they're off on one tail. On the other hand, that really pretty girl that's in my social network that now is commanding the attention of all the males around, now, I can't stand her. I wish she were dead, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, again, it's really important to recognize who is the target of our social comparison. Right. It, it could, it's, uh, you'll, you'll be better off living in the largest trailer in the trailer park than the smallest mansion in the, <laughs> in the gated well community. That's exactly right. So I did a study uh, uh, well now maybe 14 years ago with uh, one of my former doctoral students where we looked at the following economic scenario, which again speaks to this whole relative issue. 
So if you tell people, and it actually speaks to homo economicus, this idea of rational uh, decision making. So if you ask people, would you prefer to receive a $500 salary raise and uh, your close colleague also receives a $500 salary raise? Or, scenario two, would you prefer to receive a $600 raise and your colleague receives an $800 raise? Yeah. Now, of course, from a strict, rational, economic, homo economics, economics Why wouldn't you want more money? More money. 600 better than 500 easy. Yeah. Of course... Many people choose the, the fair, five, well, not fair, the, the equitable five, five, 500, 500, precisely because we care, in this case, about relative standing. I mean, I, I feel this way in, in comedy a lot. It happens where, where I'll be at a place um, that is uh, like a, a, really, a really big venue or whatever, and, and um, it's a big chain, uh, and you know I know they're doing quite well, and make all sorts of money and they might pay me double what I'm or close to it than what I'm what I'm getting at some small little independent club but this small little independent club they you know they're not drawing as many people in and and uh, you know the owner really cares about comedy and right. you know he's he's like trying the best he can and I feel like it is fair based on what what the attendance is like right. and what he's able to give me. And I actually feel better about working for half the price for the right. guy that is giving me what he can, as opposed to like, I'm, I'm counting the seats at some big venue. I'm like, well, sure, this is better than what I'm used to getting paid, but look how much money exactly. they're making exactly. off of me. Well, I, I really like the fact that you come up with these personal anecdotes, because I mean, one of the things that's so powerful about much of what we're discussing, evolutionary theorizing is that, you, you see its power precisely in that all of these mechanisms should be able to be linked to your personal lives, right? If these mm -hmm. are truly powerful ways to explain human behavior, anything that we're talking about, the listener should be able to say, geez, I, that's exactly right. And, and now let me link it to my personal life. Uh, th did we talk about last week about the paternity uncertainty with the fetus? I think we did. Did we? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, uh, I, I love to use that example. I'll just mention it very quickly right. again. Right? So that example where my mother-in-law looked at the ultrasound of my daughter, uh, which, of course, at that point didn't look at all like me, and yet she insisted that she looked like me, that is a snippet in my personal life of paternity uncertainty and her trying to assuage the threats of paternity uncertainty. So I think that's the I think that's why people become intoxicated with the evolutionary bug once they they hear about it. Yeah, because I got you can bit. link exactly. Yeah. And I got I mean, look, listen by the way, all of your guests, I can guarantee you, all the evolutionists that you bring on your show, if you were to ask them how were they first exposed, they will roughly tell you the same story. They mm -hmm. they were at the store, they opened up some book. Now the the book might be different and so on. Right. But there is literally a moment that they could think. There's an episodic memory trace of that time where they learned about the, the parsimony of evolutionary theory and they were bitten, precisely because it is so elegant in its capacity to explain the world. Yeah, yeah. I I'm, I'm about to drop agree. the mic. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is time to drop the mic, <laughs> Oh, it actually. is. So we didn't talk about religion. Uh, uh, and okay. Yeah, may, maybe, maybe on the next one. <laughs> there you go. Um, uh, but, but you should definitely get... Um, uh, get his book, The Consuming Instinct, What Juicy Burgers, Ferraris, Pornography, and Gift-Giving Reveal About Human Nature. And there's a whole chapter on 
on kind of the idea of selling hope and religion and and right. maybe if we do another episode in That'd the future I, I, I kind of thought we were gonna bring it up today but we were having so much fun talking about this and <laughs> and this was uh this was relatively even and better than last episode it I'd just say. keeps getting and, better and um and relatively uh i thought you know you were a better guest than any of my guests that aren't listening to this right now so <laughs> <laughs> so i appreciate thank you, you very much God, sad. thanks for inviting the, the, me the sad father the sad truth the, the sad truth and the ga- by the godfather there you go um go and uh w- one more time the youtube channel so the youtube and channel twitter account yeah so and- the so at gadsad g-a-d-s-a-h-a-d if you want to follow me on twitter and you're you're quite active on twitter I compared am. to your average academics so. i am and then you could also uh follow me on my facebook page Doctor period gad period sad. And then, of course, you could check out my YouTube channel and hopefully subscribe to it. Well, thank you for being my guest and thanks everybody for listening. And I'll talk with you next week. Thank you guys for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, do all that good stuff for me. Share it with all your friends, your friend, your family, strangers, co workers, all that good stuff. Next week on the program, uh, Forrest Shaw joins me. He is a former marine biologist turned comedian. And we have a, uh, a cool conversation about marine biology. So you guys are going to like it. We have a lot of fun. And I'll talk with you then. Thanks for staying curious, everybody. I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. (laughs) Like he's a television audience demographic? (laughs) Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. (laughs) Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, oh my God. he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. 
Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. 